Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. All right. Hello. Welcome along. It's the part of the week where we get a little bit mm, really bored with life down here on planet Earth. So we escape. We travel across the universe. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you for being there, for listening, for joining. Every week we come together to search out those science secrets that are lurking through the solar system. This week we're chatting to someone amazing who's been celebrated by the United Nations, who are some of the most important people in the world. They've been talking about her work towards sustainability and saving the world. The best part is she is only seven years old. Her name is Moksha Roy, and she's on helping us understand how we can solve the climate crisis. I saw this big furry bee, and it was crawling on our carpet. At first I got a little scared, but then I realised it must have got hurt. So I got some sugar water for it and let it go outside. And then it started flying again. And we'll travel up to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, for a lesson with Professor Pulsar, all about exactly what the robots on Mars are made from. There have been many different types of robots that have been developed for space exploration, from roving vehicles that use wheels or caterpillar tracks to drive over the surface, to human-like robots that could take the place of space-walking astronauts. And I've got your questions to answer this week. They are on why cats always land safely, and there's something about worms moving too, how they manage to wriggle. It's coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. A strange butterfly thought to be extinct in the UK for nearly a century has popped up again. Small numbers of black-veined whites have been spotted flying around in fields and hedgerows. This is odd because, well, they officially became extinct in Britain back in 1925. The Butterfly Conservation Charity says that they must have been released from a private collection. They don't know why they're there. It's brilliant news to see these amazing creatures flying in the wild again, but don't get too excited. The charity said that although it's nice to have them, it doesn't mean they'll start popping up all over the place. Also, experts have spotted a huge explosion of water vapour billowing into space from an icy moon of Saturn called Enceladus. The moon is just over 500 kilometres wide. It's covered in ice. Listen to this. One of the many geysers on it spurted out a water stream 9,600 kilometres up in the air. That's as far away as it is from the UK, where I am, all the way to Japan, on the other side of the world. It's been spurting that water straight up into space. It's been spotted by the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, this is amazing because experts are really fascinated by the moon Enceladus. They think that with all that water around, if there's any left while it's spurting it into space, it could have the basics to support life. 
and three teenagers will represent Team GB at this year's World Space Modelling Championships. Wilfred, Ted and Charlie are from Essex in Britain. They've designed and built their own small rockets. They won bronze in the UK, taking on experienced adults, and now they're heading over to Texas in America to take on the world. Ted says he's been making rockets since he was eight years old. He even set up a club at school. He made it to the UK Youth Rocketry Finals. He loves building the things. There's a brilliant lesson in there. Not all schools have rocket building classes, right? Ted's didn't. So what did he do? He made his own club. What a brilliant idea. Best of luck to them three as they go over to represent the UK in Texas. Let's spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering then. For the last few weeks, we've been learning all about the different types of engineering and engineers. We've been going to Engineer Academy, in fact, learning about, learning about everything from acoustics to zoos, A to Z, how things are made, why they're there, who makes them, and it's time to get a new letter. Let's catch up with our friend Angus and find out what we're learning about and spin that big wheel. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's T. And T is for tunnels. Thanks, Engers. There are thousands of tunnels across the UK, some hundreds of years old. The longest tend to be railway tunnels. The Severn Tunnel is the longest mainline tunnel, and also one of the oldest. It opened in 1886 and is 4.4 miles long. The Northern Line under London is longer, running 17 miles between East Finchley and Morden. And the longest of all is the Channel Tunnel at 23 miles, but half is in France. So, what is a tunnel anyway? Put simply, it's a space under or through an obstacle. That could be for traffic under a busy city, a high-speed rail line linking cities across the country, or a way to hide utilities under the ground. Things like electricity cables or water and sewage pipes. How one constructs a tunnel depends on its length and size, and also on the ground and groundwater conditions through which the tunnel is built. Tunnel engineering is a specialized subset of civil engineering. Tunnel engineers need to have a deep understanding of different types of soil and rocks, how grounds behave, and the interaction between the ground and structure built inside. And to dig down into the details, here's Engers. There are two basic types of tunnel construction. Cut and cover where tunnels are constructed by digging out a shallow trench and then covering it over, and bored tunnels. No, they're not boring. They're just tunnels which are constructed by digging out without removing the ground above using equipment like tunnel boring machines. The technical version of a giant mole. We went to HS2 to find out more. Over half of the HS2 route between London and the West Midlands will be in tunnels or cuttings, helping to reduce the visual impacts in the landscape. They are using 10 giant tunnel boring machines, or TBMs, to dig 103 kilometres of tunnels between London and Crewe at depths of up to 90 metres. In total, 130 million tonnes of earth will be excavated. That's enough to fill Wembley Stadium 15 times. The rotating cutter head at the front of the TBM bores the tunnel, installing the round concrete segments that form the tunnel walls as it goes. 
Each TBM is a self-contained underground factory up to 170 metres in length. That's nearly 1.5 times the length of a football pitch. And weighing 2,000 tonnes, the equivalent of 340 African bush elephants. They dig the tunnel, line it with concrete wall segments and grout them into place as it moves forward. A crew of 17 keeps the machines running, supported by a team of over 100 people managing logistics and maintaining the smooth progress of the tunnelling operation. Each tunnel requires tens of thousands of precision-engineered, fibre-reinforced concrete wall segments, which are all made on site. HS2 are also building tunnels using the cut-and-cover method of construction, with trees and shrubs planted on top to become green tunnels. First, a cutting is excavated where the green tunnel is needed. The excavated earth is kept close by, as it will be needed later on. In the second stage, a concrete floor is laid, and then pre-cast segments are installed, forming the structure of the tunnel. The final stage occurs after the tunnels have been installed. The earth that was removed is replaced on top of the new structure. New trees and shrubs are planted, and the tunnel blends into the landscape, connecting wildlife habitats along the line of the route. Unlike TBM-created tunnels, which are circular, green tunnels are designed as an M-shaped double arch, each the height of two double-decker buses. And instead of casting the concrete segments on site, they're made in bulk in Derbyshire to speed up construction and improve efficiency. They're slotted together to create a double arch, one central pier, two side walls and two roof slabs, the largest weighing 43 tonnes. Concrete and steel are some of the biggest sources of carbon emissions within the construction industry. And by reducing the amount of both materials needed for the tunnel, this lighter weight modular approach is expected to more than halve the amount of carbon embedded in the structure. It also requires less people and equipment on site, improving safety and reducing disruption for residents. Thanks, Engers. The scale of these mega-projects is almost unimaginable, no matter how much experience you have. If you'd like to find out more and meet the team at EKFB who are building the green tunnels, head over to the Fun Kids website. And that's our take on the letter T. It's been terrific! If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out telecommunications, television, textile or transport engineering? Engineer Academy. More with Engers and the A to Z of engineering at the same time next week on the show. Right now, let me be your expert. I love this part of the show. If you've got anything sciencey that you want answered, things that you've heard at school that you just can't believe, it sounds ridiculous, let me find out for you. Easiest way to send a question is by opening up the free Fun Kids app, dropping a voice note to me there, or by sending it to the Science Weekly page at funkidslive.com. Let's get the first one this week from Frank. Hi, my name is Frank, and when cats fall, how do they land on their feet? There are a few reasons that cats land on their feet. It's why people often say they have nine lives, because they're very agile and bouncy. They seem very lucky to nip round, fall on their feet. And uh, I don't know if you've got a cat, but if it's like mine, Tiggy the Terra Tabby, uh, well, she's always climbing really high and then falling. Uh, she would probably say jumping, but kind of falling off quite gracefully. 
Now, cats don't have a collarbone like you and me. Your collarbone is, is just above your shoulders, really, and it connects your head, your neck and your backbone together to make you quite sturdy and strong. Cats don't have that, which means their head and backbone are connected in a much more flexible way. It lets them spin quickly in the air. Also, almost as soon as they're born, they uh, develop something called the writing reflex. Now, we've spoken many times on the show before about how your ears and fluid in there help you determine whether you're balanced or not, whether you're spinning, whether you're wonky. Now, cats, they've got very sensitive ears. And with this writing reflex, it means they understand almost instantly which way up they're facing. They don't really get dizzy like that. They know what's around them. And that, with their collarboneless neck, means they can nip round just in time. So they're always landing on their feet, Frank. Thank you so much for the question. Let's get another one. It's about another stranger creature. This is from Louise. Hi, my name's Louise, and my question is, how do worms move forwards and backwards? So, how do worms move forwards and backwards? How does that happen? Well, a normal worm has about 120 round segments, kind of between 100 and 150. Those little segments that fit together to make its body. In each of those, you have nerves, you've got organs, you've got muscles, the important stuff. And there are two types of muscles on a worm. Ones that go all the way from tip to toe, well tip to bottom, not really a toe is it? From head to the the bottom bit, they've got a muscle there. They've also got muscles that go around them. They've got small hairs all over their body too, called setae. And they help anchor themselves into the ground, help stick them in place. When the hairs are there lodged into the mud, the soil, they can use those muscles up and down and side to side to wriggle. Imagine you're lying in a tunnel. You can kind of wiggle a bit, right? But unless your hands and feet are on the ground, it's hard to make any proper moves. It's hard to get the purchase to use the force you need to wriggle. That's what the hair does for the worm. It locks them in the ground, a bit like a ship's anchor, so they can push themselves forward. Thank you very much for the question, Louise. If you have anything that you want answered next week on the podcast, make yourself a star of the show. I'd love to hear what you think. Get to the free Fun Kids app. Uh, You can send the voice note to me there or do it using the big record button at funkidslive.com. For this week's Dangerous Dam, where we look at some of the most mean, evil, weird, strange things in the universe, we're diving under the ocean to look at a very bizarre fish whose teeth are so sharp, scuba divers should stay well away. The Titan Triggerfish is found in lagoons and reefs all around the warm oceans in the world, around the Pacific mostly. It feeds on crustaceans, mollusks and coral. That should let you know what's going on. Coral is very tough, but they could eat right through it. They're quite big, the Titan Triggerfish. About 75 centimetres, they've got yellow and green fins with large bulging eyes. But the really terrifying thing of how they look is their incredibly sharp teeth. They're big and they're bitey. The problem for humans in the ocean near them is that they're very territorial. They defend their homes till the end. You shall not pass. If someone swims near their flat, sandy nest, they'll probably get attacked. Their teeth are so sharp and strong, they can actually rip through divers' suits. They are incredibly powerful. They're also known for their amazing swimming moves to push, to tail, and force an intruder away from their home. Now, their bites aren't venomous, 
But it doesn't matter, really. They are aggressive and they are extremely painful with their thick teeth if you swim nearby. And what makes them even more dangerous, sometimes if they're caught and eaten, their flesh is toxic and can make you pretty sick pretty quick. And that means the Titan Triggerfish, with its terrorizing teeth, goes straight on to our Dangerous Dan list. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're chatting to someone incredible who has done a lot. They've won a British Citizen Youth Award for her commitment to sustainability. She's the world's youngest UN Sustainable Development Goals and Sustainability Advocate. Uh, Moksha Roy is with us. Moksha, thank you so much for being there. Now, Moksha, just tell us, uh, how did you become a UN Sustainability Advocate? My mum told me that glitter was a form of microplastic and is harmful to the planet and us. So it really made me think, how can I tell other children like me about plastic pollution and help stop it? So this is when I volunteered for a United Nations Sustainable Development Goals or Global Goals project called Microplastic Free 2030 through a public awareness video. In this video, I help children of my age and older learn about the harmful effects of plastic glitter as an example, which when goes into the environment, breaks down into microplastics and harms sea life in us. This is what happens with most other things made out of plastic that we use every day, such as toys, clothes, bottles and plastic bags. If not recycled, goes into the landfills and becomes microplastics, polluting the environment and is now in our blood as well. It's amazing, isn't it, Moksha, that these tiny little microplastics are around all of us all of the time and we don't really know. Before you started making the video, Moksha, when you first started to realise that this was a problem, how much did you tell friends about this issue and how worried you were about it? Well, I was quite worried indeed because at first I thought that it was just fine. But then once I'd realised, I started telling quite a lot of people in my nursery because I went to nursery, but now I, of course, go to school. And I was definitely very, very worried. Do you remember what your friends at nursery and now at school said when you told them how worried you were about microplastics and sustainability? What did they say? Well, now at school, they have started actually acting on it. And instead of using glitter and plastic, they've started to use other eco-friendly materials that are kind to the planet and us. So... That's brilliant. And you are this UN sustainability advocate. What's been your favourite part of spreading awareness about the problem? Well, my favourite part of spreading awareness on this issue is when I get to see real change happen and I see people making changes, even really small ones, which can have a big impact on the planet, me and you. 
For example, when I wrote all those 193 letters, I felt really happy to have the support from so many world leaders, some of whom took action to make the necessary policy changes to include the global goals in their curriculum. And also, as I said before, now I see many of my friends just giving up using glitter altogether. Instead, they are using natural materials for arts and crafts. And also, many of my friends have now started asking their friends and family to donate to charities instead of giving them a birthday gift, just like I do for my birthdays, giving up my birthday gifts to support children in need through UNICEF. And did you know that on an average in the UK, People spend about £150 on birthday gifts for children. Imagine if only 1,000 people give up their birthdays gifts for a charity every month. Then over £2 million can be raised in just one year. Together we can stop so many unwanted plastic gifts from going into the landfills. Wow, it's, it's, it's amazing that that's how much we kind of spend on birthdays and what a brilliant idea to send them to charity. Moksha, just tell us more about what you've done at home in your life, because this is a big problem for you to try and solve. We can only do it one person at a time. So what little changes have you made, apart from the birthday presents, that gets you thinking about how you're using microplastics? Well. Now it's summer, lots of the bees are coming out. Bees actually die once they've stung someone. So at home, I saw this big furry bee and it was crawling on our carpet. At first I got a little scared, but then I realised it must have got hurt. So I got some sugar water for it and let it go outside. And then it started flying again. That's a, a brilliant idea and some fantastic tips and advice there. Do you have any other tips, Moksha, stuff that maybe we can do to try and uh, reduce our emissions and how we're affecting the planet? Well, we all know about the usual things we should be doing to reduce emissions, like using less cars and walk and cycle more, switching off lights, using less water, use solar wind and wind energy and plant more trees. But there are some unusual ones that we might not think could add to the emissions. For example, when we need a new school uniform, we could go and buy a brand new one or get one from the outgrown uniform sale. So the choices we make can decide if we're adding to the emissions or not. And we also rarely think of food waste as a cause for emissions. But millions of tons of food are wasted every day and we need so much energy to make and transport food. We should also have a balanced diet and not eat meat and fish every day. That way we could um, reduce emissions quite a lot. We all know that meat farm gives up loads of methane adding to the emissions. So eating meat every day is surely a no-no. And if we eat fish every day, we cause overfishing that leads to lack of fish in the sea and oceans, spoiling the ocean's ecosystem, which is the largest carbon sink 
protecting the planet against climate change. If we carry on doing this, the ocean's ecosystem will be damaged and we'll have a planet destroyed by climate change. Uh, You have. You're seven years old and... You have the longest and maybe best title of anyone I've ever met, let alone someone seven. I'll say it again. You, you won a British Citizen Youth Award for your commitment to sustainability. You're the world's youngest UN Sustainable Development Goals and Sustainability Advocate. Uh, what does it all mean? Can you tell us a little bit about the Global Goals of Sustainability? Well, first of all, let me tell you what the Global Goals are. The Global Goals are a set of 17 goals created by the United Nations. The United Nations consists of 193 countries of the world and its people, including me and you. Now, the United Nations came up with the Global Goals because the world has been facing some major problems like poverty, war, climate change and gender inequality. The Global Goals are a plan that all the world leaders have agreed to put into action that leads to a greener, fairer, and better world by 2030. Some of the goals are no poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality and climate action. Now partnerships for the goals is my favourite goal because it would be very hard to achieve even a few of the global goals because as it goes many hands make light work and to achieve these goals the UN has suggested 170 simple actions that everyone can do to ensure we all have a safe and sustainable future. Moksha you know old people you know adults and grown-ups yes they they can be quite uh, sad and a bit negative about the future of the planet, can't they sometimes? I think I'm not doing anything special because I am doing something which I think everyone should be doing. I think every child can become a global goal superhero. It's just like caring for your teeth. Be caring for our planet and its people in everything we do. Just by planting some trees or switching off lights, we cannot solve the big problems the planet is facing today. We need to do more to help. Children can start by introducing the 170 actions to their parents that the UN has suggested to achieve the goals. If every family can make simple changes to include sustainability in everything they do, we can make a real difference. They say, if you care, you'll protect it. So if you just care for yourself and make small changes, you'll be absolutely amazed how your actions have a ripple effect, positively impacting the planet and people around you and millions of miles away. My last question, Moksha, and we've spoken about how sometimes adults and grown-ups can be a bit uh, negative. How do you stay so happy and positive when thinking about the future of our world? Well, I know that when I grow up, there are two possible worlds. There can be a world where everything is gloomy, lots of children sad on the streets with their families, and it's a really, really sad, horrible world. Or when I grow up, there could be another world where nature is happy, everyone has a home, fresh water, they're safe and animals are are also protected from poaching and from being killed or hurt and also all the seas are clear 
and the beaches are clean. Wow, it, it, it's amazing that you uh, stay so happy and so positive and that you're doing so much. Moksha Roy, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us today. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for inviting me here. Let's take a trip to Deep Space High then to finish this week's episode off. Uh, for the last couple of months or so, we have been zooming up to the smartest school in the solar system with Professor Pulsar and the class. And then, well, straight away, we've been going to the Red Planet. Oh, it's been an awful long time for us. We've been taking class trips every single week. And we've been learning about Mars and the rovers that are being used, exploring the rocks of the red planet to try and find signs of life. This week, we're thinking about the differences between humans and the robots that we're using, and maybe some of the similarities too. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. sending robots to Mars? Why not just send real astronauts? Because it's really dangerous, Quark. Well, I feel a bit sorry for the robots. Robots aren't alive. That's true, Stats, but sometimes they can have a lot in common with their human owners, and that's why they're so helpful. In some cases, they can do even more than humans. They don't need to eat and never get tired. Well, unless running out of fuel counts. And they can survive in really cold or hot conditions. Some of them can even learn. I wonder if my job would be a lot easier with a class full of robots. Not as much fun, though. (laughs) There have been many different types of robots that have been developed for space exploration. From roving vehicles that use wheels or caterpillar tracks to drive over the surface, to human-like robots that could take the place of space-walking astronauts. Using arms and hands, they will be able to make repairs and replace experiments. Some robots look so light like you can hardly tell that they're not human. There are tons of creepy movies about that. That's right, and sometimes they can play games or answer questions just like a real person. Hey, how do we know you're not a robot, sir? I guess that's for me to know and you to find out. Why don't we see how much we have in common with robots? First up, we have a body structure with a skeleton. Robots are built from all sorts of materials with moving joints, so they've got structure too. Pretty similar. What about muscles? We need those to move around. Robots can move around using mechanics and engines. All right, neck and neck at the moment. What about a sensory system? Things like sight and touch. Things to receive information about the environment. Well, robots can have sensors and cameras to collect information like that and to respond to information. Well, what about a power source? We have to eat food, which is converted into the energy that our bodies need. Well, robots use all types of fuel. Liquid stuff like petrol or even solar panels, like the ExoMars rover. What about being able to process information and carry out instructions? We have a brain for that. I guess robots have computers? Uh Uh-oh, there don't seem to be many differences at all. Maybe robots could take over the world. Hold up, stats. Those are largely physical similarities, and there is much more to intelligence than just following instructions. Just because a robot can process information, what about knowing what's right and wrong? Or having a favourite food? Coming up with a fantastic story? What if it encounters a situation that it hasn't been programmed for? I suppose we are learning all the time. Can robots learn too? In some ways, yes. 
Artificial intelligence is an exciting field in robotics and scientists are developing robots with the ability to learn and come up with their own ideas. As we found with the ExoMars rover, being such a long way from Earth means the more they can do by themselves, the better. Maybe even come up with their own stories. Hey, imagine a joke telling machine. How cool would that be? Not much good on Mars. <laughs> Deep Space High, Destination Mars. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkinslive.com slash space. That is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you have a question that you want answered, you can do that next week on the show. Make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or send it by pressing the record button at funkidslive.com. Now, you can get bonus episodes of this show, extra long chats with our guests, even more of your questions answered. They are exclusive to Fun Kids Podcast Plus subscribers. You can try that out for free on Apple or get to funkidslive.com. Uh, we've got loads more of the brilliant series that you've heard today. Deep Space High, the A to Z of Engineering. We've got so many more wherever you get your shows. They're on Google, Apple, Spotify. And Fun Kids, we're our children's radio station from the UK. Listen in on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!